0: I remember the Harvard Crimson polls students at the end of every year, and one of the questions was, do you feel able to say what you're thinking in class? And something like 75% of the kids said no, but if you have even a question about certain ideologically set ideas, you are not going to speak up. And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk.
1: On November 3rd, 2020, I became significantly more optimistic about the state of democracy in the United States and perhaps around the world than I had been over the last few years. For about 10 years, we have seen a very rapid rise of authoritarian populists around the world, and remarkably, there have been very few instances in which democratic forces were able to remove those leaders by democratic means. Joe Biden's election was the first grand victory in the long-standing battle between democratic and authoritarian populist forces. Well, over the last few months, some of my residual pessimism has crept back up on me. That has to do, of course, with the extent to which Donald Trump seems to keep a hold over the Republican Party. It has to do with the terrible events of January 6th, 2021. But it also, and in some ways more importantly, has to do with the fate of democracy around the world. Now, uh, Freedom House has published just this week its new edition of the annual report on the state of democracy around the world. Unfortunately, the headline findings make for pretty grim reading. As Larry Diamond has pointed out, we are in the midst of a democratic recession, Well, 2020 was the 15th year of that democratic recession, and it was, in fact, the deepest year of democratic recession, the year out of those 15 years in which the world has moved away from democracy most rapidly. Over the course of last year, 73 countries experienced declines in their democracy score, moved away from democracy. Only 28 moved towards it. The most important case is India. The world's largest democracy, but because of Narendra Modi's attacks on freedom of speech, as well as the discriminatory laws passed against Muslims, has now been downgraded to only partly free. In the world as a whole, less than one in five people now live in a country classified as fully free. And one of the really remarkable things about the report is that despite the understandable attempt by its authors to try and find some bright spot, some positive development somewhere, they seem so trivial compared to the declines. Countries like Brazil, Indonesia, the United States, and as I said, India declined. Countries like Mali and North Macedonia were highlighted as positive examples. And much as I care for the fate of Mali and North Macedonia these countries do not add to up to the population or the geostrategic importance of the many countries that are now declining. Sometimes, as we say, the night is darkest before dawn. I don't think we can simply project forward from the last 15 years or from this very bitter year to the next years that the state of democracy around the world is more imperiled at this point than it has in a long, long time Well, today it's a real pleasure to welcome Emily Yoffe to the podcast. Emily is a member of our editorial team and of our board of advisors at Persuasion. I started reading her a very long time ago when she was Dear Prudy, an advice columnist at Slate, always offering wise and insightful commentary about The World. But she has also written very important articles about Me Too, about Title IX, and a whole bunch of other subjects. We talked about the strange moment online, the way in which people feel that their conversation is constrained, and why that should matter to people. And we discussed one of her great early articles for persuasion called a Taxonomy of Fear, in which she goes through why it is so important to uphold ideas like that intent matters, why it is a mistake to think that authority is always the best way to deal with social conflict. I'm sure you'll enjoy the conversation. Emily Yoffie, welcome to the podcast.
0: So nice to be here. Thank you.
1: You know, look, there's a million things I want to talk to you about, but let's start with how I came across your work, which was many, many years ago when you started doing the Dear Prudy column at Slate, giving, you know, funny, wry, soulful advice to people asking sometimes rather bizarre questions. And I'm just struck when I look at the world today, how the sort of general tenor of advice columns has changed. And it feels to me like the change really tells us something about the culture more broadly. So tell us a little bit about what it was like to write that advice column and what you feel when you look at all of the advice columns that are out there today, not just at Slate, but at you know New York Magazine and all of these different places.
0: Well, I always loved when men would tell me they were readers and often it would be a sotto voce. I read your column,
1: I certainly sometimes looked at it. You know, I was a graduate student at Harvard and I was sort of in the computer lab, which is where we all sat and wrote our things. And I would certainly surreptitiously look at it and think, I hope my professor doesn't walk in as I'm sort of reading about the salacious latest question.
0: You know, that's kind of how I saw the reader. So it's so nice to hear that. I often thought of the column and I liked each column to have a range of things, you know, something serious, light things but it's kind of a bonbon in the day of people, because I know most people read it at work. So it's just just a little secret thing you looked at. And also a lot of people would tell me the column always made me feel better about my own life that I was not writing this letter to Prudy. I stopped in 2015. I did it for almost 10 years. Saw a lot of changes in that time. And oh, man, I don't generally have good timing about things. That was good timing to get out, at least for me. I mean, as I look at columns now, the idea of alternating between COVID questions and wokeness questions just seems so dreadful. But I remember I got a few letters from college students saying, I'm really upset because this classmate of mine has not accepted my friend request. i was like, how do you go to a person and say, will you be my friend? That sounds so crazy. Or I wrote something on someone's wall and they took it down. Did you go in the person's room? I literally had no idea what these people were talking about. And then I discovered this thing called Facebook. So I was there just at the beginning of social media happening. And in fact... Out of a few of these questions, I ended up writing a story. Can a woman in her 50s find friends on Facebook? Because Facebook had just opened up beyond college students. My answer at the time was no. Just think of that. I couldn't find anyone to friend me. So I just feel lucky I did it over the span of time I did. Because I didn't have this little voice that I would have now in the back of my head. Am I going to get creamed? on social media? Am I going to get activist groups against me? So it was the end of a certain kind of freedom to talk about just a wide range of issues.
1: I mean, this is sort of one of the things that I always wonder about this moment. I think everybody who is a writer at this point, everybody who's a thinker, has really internalized the sort of Greek chorus of Twitter or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, when I talk with my students, some of them say, not all of them, but a good number of them have told me that they don't really feel comfortable saying what they really think or their real opinions to most people on campus. And I remember, you know, in university, one of the great joys was just talking about the world with people. And it was an incredible sense of freedom. And, you know, my friends were earnest people who were, you know, pretty idealistic. I don't think we said any particularly offensive things, but there was a sense of you can really just explore the world and think. And now I think there's this sense among so many people of what would the least charitable interpretation of what I'm saying be and what kind of consequences might that have. And that just seems like a really sad way to lead life. It's a sad way to be a writer. I think if there's any point of being a writer, it's to actually figure out what you think about the world and share it with people. And when people are willing to give that up, I don't think the writers, the political activists or something else. And I have deep political commitments, but my primary identity is as a writer. But I find it even sad in people's lives when people seem to have this sort of paranoia. I guess you were one of the first people to notice that because of the nature of a job and the way that you were sort of trying to think about social media.
0: Yes. And what you are observing among your students, we know it's absolutely true. Occasionally there'll be polls. I remember the Harvard Crimson Polls students at the end of every year and probably around 2018, I happened to just see this Crimson Poll and one of the questions, I don't know if they've always asked this or this was a new question, do you feel able to say what you're thinking in class? And something like 75% of the kids said no. Now, certainly large numbers of those kids would all agree on the topic, whatever they don't feel able to speak about. But if you have even a question about certain ideologically set ideas, you are not going to speak up. And they're not wrong. I've talked to kids who've spoken up in class and had very unpleasant things happen and been mopped, and had what they've said in class distorted through social media. I came up at a time when if you wrote something controversial or provocative, and I don't mean just for the Sega, let's end women's suffrage, not something idiotic like that, but, you know, some idea that was different or would rile people up. That was the way you made your career. If you would get 10 letters to the editor, wow, that was a huge reaction
1: it's funny, you know, I hadn't thought of this. And, you know, there's a limitation to that kind of culture too. I just thought of my mom, who's a classical musician and a conductor, doesn't have any particularly controversial political opinion so far as I know, but there was a self-understanding of artists at the time. She did a lot of contemporary classical music, right? And sometimes it would piss audiences off because they thought they'd go to the opera for sort of nice Mozart and they heard stuff that was discordant and then they were upset. And some, I suppose, some of the operas that you conducted perhaps had a political message or had a kind of staging that perhaps shocked people or something like that. But, you know, if you were the director of the opera and you take your bow at the first night of this production and you get booed by, you know, some of the members of the audience, people were proud of that, right? I mean, that was sort of like, all right, we really showed it to them. And in respect, I think some of that is actually a little infantile as well, right? I mean, I think that there's a sort of odd problem in a lot of modern art and culture of sort of trying to break tradition, that the tradition has become breaking for tradition for over a hundred years. So, you know, you're sort of pretending to be anti-conventional when you're actually deeply conventional. So, you know, I'm not uncritical of that, but it's such a different spirit to what it feels like today.
0: Yasha, haven't you had the experience? Well, not over the past year, but I've had many times been at dinner parties or group at lunch and everyone starts talking. And at some point someone says, no one's recording this, right?
1: Hmm.
0: Now these are friends and no one's saying anything horrible. You're just making jokes or exploring past the boundaries of issues that, you know, have a certain nomenclature and allowed opinion.
1: The thing that I started noticing a few years ago is people suddenly just speaking at a much lower volume about certain topics, right? You go to certain topics and you just notice that they sort of lean in a little bit closer and, you know, the decibel level sort of drops by an order of magnitude. And that to me is a sign of an unhealthy culture.
0: Very, and I was at a dinner one night with a group of maybe three, four couples. Everyone except my husband and I had worked in some capacity in a authoritarian or totalitarian country, you know, as various reporter or working for the government. And one person said, this is what it, it was like over there. You have a group of people you have to trust who you can be open and relaxed with but that's not true of the workplace or in general. And you're right, that is so unhealthy. And I think that's where we are in many ways.
1: So what do you think created that? It seems, you know, and perhaps to some of the listeners to this podcast from outside of the United States, I can see that some people might think, you know, what are these two talking about? This just seems nuts. You know, I mean, the United States is a free country. You're not Going to be thrown in jail for saying something wrong. And that's an important disanalogy to the experience of totalitarian regimes. And yet I think you're onto something about some of the social dynamics of it. So what has produced that? Why is that possible? Why is a country that you know loves to talk about liberty so much suddenly so reluctant to speak in those ways? Or is it just, which I suspected is a certain kind of milieu?
0: Well, you are actually on campus. I've written for the past few years a lot about stuff that's going on on campus regarding Title IX. This is the federal law that prevents discrimination in education. It originally was used almost exclusively about athletics. Now it's overwhelmingly about sexual assault on campus, which I'm against, let me say, uh, for people who think I'm not. But I remember having discussions with friends who are also, there's a small group writing about stuff that's going on on campus. Well, Andrew Sullivan has a phrase, we're all on campus now. And I remember there being, as people started writing John Hyde and Greg Lukianoff and Coddling of the American Mind, et cetera, about really bizarre explosions on campus over what seemed like very trivial issues. And people would say, well, look, when the kids get to the workplace, the workplace is just going to say, you can't act like that here. And I and others felt No, the workplace is not going to punch the kids in the face. The kids are going to punch the workplace in the face. And that's what's happened. And I think along with the rise of social media, that you can, now disputes are not personal necessarily. You can take a dispute about anyone online and it doesn't necessarily blow up, but we've all seen things where It's not famous people, it's completely unknown people caught in a moment and their lives are ruined. Now I'm not saying there haven't been people who've been caught doing awful things, but you're right, we've internalized this language policing and now sort of the attitudes of campus are now in HR. I wrote about this at Persuasion and others have too, the sense that there should be authorities to mediate personal disputes of any kind. People should not have to work it out themselves. I've talked to people who work in Title IX offices. Several have said to me, I'm not the breakup office. You don't come here because you're having a bad breakup with your boyfriend. But now there's kind of the first person to get to the Title IX office controls what happens over the course of this bad breakup. And I've had people who, you're there, you tell me who work with kids and who say, in part because of, I guess, phone, social media, just their social skills, ability to kind of hash it out. I grew up in a time where like hashing it out was really interesting. Now it's really dangerous
1: you talk about campus culture and you had a really great piece earlier at Persuasion, which I think helps to make sense of precisely what we're talking about, which was called a taxonomy of fear. I think it might be worth going through it a little bit because in a lot of this debate, the responses, things like, well, you know, it's not something like cancel culture, which is obviously a term, but it's now often abused for political reasons, but it's something like consequence culture. Or actually it's not people limiting somebody else's freedom of speech. It is simply people choosing not to associate with somebody they don't like. And so I think there's something about this taxonomy of fear that you wrote, which helps us to explain why some of this is actually unhealthy and is actually dangerous. So I'm just looking at the headlines from this piece. One is the perils of safety, contamination by association. Intent is irrelevant and then report to the authorities. So perhaps let's go through those and tell us a little bit about each of them. So the perils of safety. Safety sounds like a good thing. Why is the language of safety perilous?
0: Well, let me again credit John Haidt and Greg Lugiano for really being among the first people to describe the whole nature of this. And they coined the phrase safetyism, I think. To jump ahead, we saw with the pushing out of James Bennett at the New York Times and now the forced resignation of Don McNeil, the science writer at the New York Times, their colleagues put out public letters and statements saying, we are not safe over what you've allowed to be written in the paper or what we find out that you've said. So this is the belief that words are actual violence. Of course, parentheses, we've seen that violence is now depending on who's committing it, can be defined as not violence, but words are actual violence. And the rise of the culture of trauma is part of this. So people take a psychological response to things. So instead of I'm going to debate you on your ideas, I think your ideas are noxious. Your ideas have actually disabled me. I cannot be in the classroom with words and ideas like this. So then it becomes completely asymmetric. If you're trying to debate the idea and the other person says, I feel like I'm going to faint the debates over. And unfortunately I think we've elevated the psychological reaction over the ability to discuss and that's becoming pervasive. You know, that was very much a campus thing. And that is, in the workplace that's in the
1: culture. So part of the concern here, I suppose, I guess there's two different concerns, right? One is a concern for what that actually does to people's lives, which I think Haidt and Lukianov are very good at exploring and recording of the American mind, which is that, you know, I think Greg Lukianov in particular has done a lot of cognitive behavioral therapy because he faces some mental health challenges that he's talked about publicly. And the idea of how to deal with trauma for medical professionals is that you try to help people process it. And that involves, at certain points, thinking back on it and trying to sort of become less vulnerable to memories of it whereas often when you think about things like trigger warnings I don't think are particularly important in themselves but they're sort of interesting diagnostic tool here the idea is you have to avoid discussion of any potentially triggering subject altogether because otherwise that will be traumatize you and the argument Lukianov would make is that this actually is really bad for people's mental health because it is the opposite of what something that cognitive behavioral therapy would suggest you do. So that's sort of interesting. I guess that beyond that, there's a way in which that seems to just be a sort of Trump card that ends any kind of political discussion. If instead of saying your idea is wrong, or I disagree with you for these reasons, or here are the empirical facts that disprove you, you say what you're saying is violence. And so therefore, you know, it is as though you just walked in in front of a Molotov cocktail through the window. It is a way of both ending the discussion and, most importantly, sort of saying what you're saying is criminal, right? I mean, what you're saying is completely outside the bounds of responsibility. It's as though you come in and slap me, and so you have to be punished for it. And so it sort of seems to set up this punitive element.
0: Right. There's very much a bullying to it because you never know when you have committed trauma against people. I look at all social science studies with a little bit, there's an asterisk. Is this a good one? Is this really legit? But there's a lot of very robust research showing the less people make the idea of a traumatic experience the central organizing principle of their life, the healthier they are. And there have been interesting studies on groups of people who were at a bank robbery or even in some terrorist incident. And they ask people to describe it at the time, six months, 18 months, you know, sometimes as far as two years later. And they'll see the people who've moved on and are fine later will describe it as way less scary than they did at the time. And the people who haven't describe it as their lives being way more in danger and it being more terrible than their original report was. So there is a real danger in people organizing themselves around this sense of extreme personal fragility. A couple of years ago, I was talking to a law professor who was talking about Accepted Students Day. This is after everyone's got their acceptance and you're hoping your yield will be high so people come to campus. Do I really want to go here? So this was for law school. This is not undergraduate. This is law school. And this professor was talking about in my thus and such class, we will talk about XYZ and I guess it's teaching criminal class and there's a segment on sexual assault and female student in the audience kind of made it <gasps> and jumped up started crying and ran out and she was with a friend who ran after her and the professor was like my, my god what what happened and later was able to catch up with them. And the young woman who had cried out and ran said, you hadn't prepared me for the fact that you would mention sexual assault. This wasn't a class on sexual assault. She simply mentioned it. So how do you give a trigger warning for a trigger warning? And this professor was, you know, kind of stunned at this response because if she said, again, what do you say? I'm going to be talking about sexual assault. She just said those words. And that was enough For the
1: students to flee. And there's there's interesting cases that you write about in the article of universities actually reducing the extent to which they teach the law around sexual assault and rape and so on because of some student reactions like that, which certainly I think is a small but very important case of these concerns about safety actually making the world less safe, because surely you would want lawyers trained at the best law schools in the country to have a good grasp and sense of the law around these issues so that they can effectively represent clients and so on. So there's something quite worrying and shocking about that. I guess I'm always interested in paradoxes where something you do to remedy a problem then sort of increases it on the other end. And social life is full of those, right? I think there's something attractive to a culture in which we take victimhood seriously, in which we are more attuned to the suffering of people who have had terrible experiences in their lives or even simply people who just have some kind of subordinate social status that gets them in danger of being treated in unfair ways and in all sorts of ways. But there is also something interesting, which is that if you create a lot of incentives for people to really define themselves by the one way in which they're most disadvantaged or the one experience they've had in their lives that is the worst day of their lives, that is the worst thing that's happened to them, it may, in fact be bad for them psychologically, and it may be bad for our ability to thrive together. And so that, I think, is a very interesting paradox, how you take victims of crime, for example, seriously without encouraging a kind of doubling down on an identity as a victim that actually is disabling. I mean, I often think through this, and it's a very different case. I certainly don't want to make an analogy to being a survivor of sexual assault or anything like that. But, you know, I grew up in Germany at a time when there was a tremendous amount of philosemitism and a tremendous amount of sort of atonement for the Nazi past. And as a Jew, I often was put in the position of people treating me like a victim and treating me with this sort of terrible, wicked gloves and like, oh my God, we're so sorry. And, and I always found that to be horribly disempowering. It means you have to play this sort of strange role you start to see yourself as somehow weak or vulnerable, and it does not feel like you're being treated as an equal. And so, you know, I I always think of it through that prism. I did not find that to be psychologically healthy for me.
0: Well, in psychology, there's this theory of learned helplessness and that, yes, your self-perception really does feed into how you behave. And absolutely right. As you say, horrible things happen to people, but Let's just say in the United States, particularly on college campuses, probably truly horrible, traumatizing things are not happening day in, day out to the same people. But if you have your antenna out, I mean, this is where the word microaggression comes out. If your antenna is out for some violation of your personhood, you're going to find it. There's no question about that. I sometimes wonder, and it's really important, I'm 65, and there's this real generational split over the understanding of this kind of thing we've been talking about and the response to this. And I think it's really important for older people to say, did we put up with too much crap? I mean, things have to change. You know, Mad Men was, you know, in some ways an accurate depiction. Things have changed. Those of us who are older have seen those changes. We can talk about how progress has now been shunted aside as a belief system. But did we put up with too much crap? Maybe. But I do think Ruth Bader Ginsburg was onto something when she talked about all this. And what happened to her coming out of law school is inconceivable.
1: What did she say in what happened to her out of law school?
0: She said, You've got to pick your spots. You cannot confront people over everything. You will disagree with people. You have to sometimes give people the benefit of the doubt they may be saying and doing things out of ignorance. Now, that doesn't mean there are things you don't say. Look, this really bothers me when you say this, or you need to think about this differently. That's really important for moving society forward. But she was saying, you just can't go day in, day out, seeing everyone, you know, she was often the only woman, the prejudice that she put up with, as I say, is unimaginable now. But if you're just going to be in this sense of, here I go out today, ready to get just more horrendous experiences, that capsizes
1: you. I think there's two interesting things here. I'm thinking back through the argument I was making in my memoir about growing up Jewish in Germany which I haven't read back because I'm sort of worried about what I'll find in it. You know, it's like my first book. And every now and again, people compliment me on it. And I think, really, should I read it again? I, I'm not sure what I dare. But I think there's two interesting things in there. The first is that I think I was primed without at that time knowing the term for microaggressions in all kinds of ways growing up because everything around being Jewish in Germany was so sensitive and complicated that I was primed to think, oh, is this person somehow expressing some kind of animus or something like that? And I mean, now that I've been out of the culture for a little bit, a lot of the things that would have upset me at the time would think, oh, whatever, you know? But I certainly understand why, if you're growing up with everybody acting like that, you yourself start to have these antennae, but I think certainly was my experience. And um, the other argument that I made in the book, which I really, at the time, wasn't thinking about the States very much, is that there's a sort of weird displacement that happens, which is that, you know, as certain things become taboo to be said, and sometimes for good reason become taboo to be said, people who want to express those ideas or opinions sort of start to express them in slightly different ways. But then what they now say, which may in itself be perfectly reasonable, starts to be read as a kind of code for the original statement. And so then that becomes taboo. And there's sort of an outer and outer displacement. But one of the impacts of that is that people who listen to things become really paranoid because they're saying, oh, you know, this person isn't saying anything that's overtly objectionable or bad, but are they hinting at something objectionable or bad? You know, is there actually some way in which they're actually trying to express that? And that's, I think, the kind of paranoia that I felt growing up in Germany. And then, of course, that makes speakers resentful because they say, hey, I'm just saying I'm completely normal. I'm not trying to express anything weird. But if I use some phrase that has some connotation that I'm unaware of or something like that, then perhaps it'll be read that way. And suddenly I'm really sort of scared about how I express myself. And that just seems like a very unhealthy dynamic.
0: And it's so amplified by social media. How do we get out of it, especially vis a vis social media? I once read this fantastic book when old technologies were new, and it was about the telephone. And the stuff on the telephone was absolutely fascinating. There was actually telegraph sex. There was an anecdote about telegraph sex. This young woman who was working in her father's office and he put in a telegraph when telegraphs were just coming in and people would come pay for it. And it, And she was sitting there and then he found out she was having telegraph sex with all the you know men in the community. There was a joke at the time the telephone came in Man calls, the parent answers, is Marie there? Yes. Marie, hi, is that you? Yes. Will you marry me? Of course I'll marry you. Who's this? So the telephone was just breaking up the way people socially interacted with each other. But new rules were set. And it used to be the polite thing to do was go visit someone. You had your calling card. You just come by. How are you going to tell them you're coming? You come by. And there were rules of, you know, either leaving your card or coming in. And the telephone, you do not come by people's house now and knock on the door. That would just be unbelievably rude. But it seems to me that however many years we're into having social media be so central to our lives, we don't really have rules.
1: We haven't developed these rules. That seems exactly right. I mean, you know, on, on social media, it always strikes me that if you are in a normal social community and you're always starting trouble, right? You're always starting drama, as per the word, right? That starts to reflect badly on you, right? It's like, oh, never mind him, or never mind her. You know, she's always saying that somebody offended her. She's always saying that somebody is bad. You know, they just like the drama, right? And that has real social costs people will stop being your friend and they have a sense that you just thrive on this continual thing. Now, that's a human trait that's always been there. And obviously it's there on social media. I think, you know, one of the odd things about this moment is that we never think about just human traits that have always been there and how they work out in certain rules and certain systems. I think that's part of actually some of your work on the changes of rules on campus and so on. But on social media, it's just we haven't yet evolved that response. And I got into some trouble on Twitter recently for saying that we shouldn't cancel the cancelers. We should make sure that they suffer some reputational costs. And what I meant by that is precisely this, that if you are always looking to defame people, if you're always looking to fire people from their jobs, if you're always looking to interpret things in the worst possible way in order to get them into trouble... That should have some reputational cost for you. We should say, never mind this person, they're just one of the people who is trying to start drama. And then hopefully people start to internalize that you really only attack people in those ways when you thought about it hard. And I saw somebody attack medic Iglesias a couple of days ago on Twitter for being a eugenicist. And this is a professor at the big university in the United States. And when somebody said, well, how on earth is this book you wrote, which is 1 billion Americans about how America should open its doors to a lot of immigration. How is this eugenicist? You can listen to the podcast with Matt and said, oh, well, I haven't read the book, but right. I mean, it's amazing that we live in a culture where you feel like you can attack somebody for having a genesis positions in a book, that really does not have eugenicist genesis positions. So oh, yeah, I haven't read the book, right. If we raise somehow the social cost of people, defaming others in that kind of way, that might help. But how do these norms come about? I mean, how is it that eventually a sort of etiquette's developed about the telephone? Is that just something that happens naturally? We just have to wait a couple of years?
0: In this book, yes. It's just this technology becomes so embedded in life. And first there's this, oh God, what's this? I'm never going to use this and then in a few years, you cannot function in society without it. I mean, I I'm so old. I'm so old. I remember when telephone answering machines first came in and there would be ads on TV for the answering machine. So if you're not there and the phone rang, you could find out who was calling and the person could tell you why they were calling. We were like, ha, ah, who would need that? Why would you need to know that? If you're not there, you're not there. The person will call back and then You couldn't function in society if you were so cut off. So the force of it just changes the rules. But here we are. The force of social media has already changed the rules, but there don't seem to be, as you say, these guidelines because social media, you know, it's a technology. All these are the phones, a technology, and then people use it. Social media is a technology, but it somehow seems to, have changed our collective experience. One big issue is I really think we need more understanding of people in groups, mobs. How a group becomes a mob. A lot of psychology, and if you're, you know, not a psychologist, but you take psychology in school, it's individual psychology. So much focus on the individual and becoming an individual. We're very different in groups. And that's what social media is. It's putting us in groups, but infinite numbers of
1: people we should have all been concerned when people say, the internet is going to create a global village, which sounded lovely because it sounded like we're all going to you know, be able to have better communication with people who are far away. But I've always hated living in a village precisely because of all of the dynamics of gossip and exclusion and deep intrusion into people's lives. And it turns out that we are living in a global village in that kind of sense, right? I want to make sure that we go through a couple of the other things, sort of big headlines in that article because I think they're actually really a helpful way of understanding what's going on. And I want to have your thoughts on it. The second that you wrote about was contamination by association so now it's not just hey what you said is violence but if somebody is a friend or colleague of that person if somebody defends that person they become associated with that intent too. You know, I think some of the dynamics we are dealing with are those of a witch hunt. And it is sort of a classic idea that why on earth would you say that this person is not a witch? You must be in league with each other. I guess you too are a witch. Tell us about contamination by association and how it's playing out and why that's worrying.
0: Well, you mentioned Matt Iglesias. One of the examples I used, you and I and Matt and what, 150 something people signed this Harper's letter talking about, these issues in society and how we're losing the ability to have fierce disagreements, but end that without someone's career being destroyed. Matt signed the letter. He was then at Vox. He's since left Vox. A colleague of his, who's a transgender woman, went on Twitter to say, I don't feel safe in my workplace because Matt signed this letter and why Didn't she feel safe? Because J.K. Rowling, the Harry Potter author, was also a signatory. And J.K. Rowling has raised some questions about transgender advocacy. So she is not feeling safe with her colleague because a name of someone else, their co-signatories. I'm just guessing Matt and J.K. Rowling are not close friends. And beyond that, she said, also, I'm worried that people, when I'm doing my reporting work, people will think I share J.K. Rowling's views because my colleague Matt signed the letter, which was signed by J.K. Rowling. So therefore, I must hold the views. That had nothing to do with the letter. The letter did not deal with transgender issues. And I thought this was just a perfect description. And she put it on social media. So it was a perfect description of the psychology of this. But if you're on Twitter, if before you like something, don't you think, okay, has this person said other things recently that could be hung around my neck? Maybe I don't want to like something that this person said, or even co-like something that this person said. So again, you say, we have all absorbed this so quickly. And it's not wrong, because you will be held responsible for things other people say with whom you have some association, which could be as trivial as liking something they said on Twitter.
1: And explain why that's harmful. You know, why is that something that we should be worried about in every society? Because I certainly see, you know, if it turns out that you're sort of hanging out of neo-Nazis day in, day out, perhaps that reflects something strange about your character, right? I mean, there's an instinct behind this idea of contamination by association, that I think we all feel. So why is it that in its current form that is so dangerous to having a real conversation or to feeling like you actually have freedom to be yourself?
0: Because you're not a self. You have the ghosts of everyone, every idea everyone else has ever uttered. And now, also because of the technology, it's searchable. I mean, it used to be ideas just in discussion, they disappeared into space. Well, if you're on a social media discussion, and and we've seen this of people who are becoming prominent uh, have been on social media since they were teenagers. So, you know, you find something genuinely bad, stupid, idiotic, they said, and didn't take down when they were teens. So if you're giving an award to someone who turns out when this person was 15 said something stupid, then you are embracing everything that person has said, you can't function. There's no sense of goodwill. You can't move forward until you've done a complete kind of corporate due diligence on everyone whose path you may cross.
1: Yeah, it's a strange kind of form of moral contagion, isn't it? I had this debate with Jonathan Haidt on a podcast recently where he would think that something like sanctity and worries about that kind of moral contagion are more characteristic of a right traditionally, whereas the left cares about fairness and equality and so on. And, and I think that some of those moral instincts that perhaps traditionally are more associated with the right are now quite prominent on the left. This idea, if you've liked a tweet of somebody who's also said something terrible in the past, and therefore you are now somehow by association suffering a contagion of their sort of terrible status, or you must also somehow be guilty of their terrible views that they expressed when they we were 15 or whatever it is, You know, it feels a little bit like worries about the sanctity of a flag, if it's sort of not flown the right way, or religious notions of sin and so on. There's a sort of strange thing going on there. The third headline in the piece is really very contemporary, actually. Its intent is irrelevant. And we saw a very interesting kerfuffle at the New York Times after Donald McNeil, the science and health reporter, was made to resign, I suppose is the correct term. Dean Beckwith at some point said, intent is not relevant. And then they sort of seem to be walking that phrase back. But the point is that McNeil on a student trip to Peru had apparently mentioned, not used, but mentioned the N-word in discussing whether a 12-year-old student should have been expelled by his or her school with one of the students on the trip. And the idea was that if you use that term in any kind of context, even if you're obviously not using it as a slur directed against somebody... But as seems to have been the case in this context, to clarify the situation, McNeil had asked, well, in what context had the student used the term? It doesn't matter that the intent wasn't to express racial animus or something like that. So that's an interesting statement for newspaper like the New York Times to make.
0: Well, it wasn't just that. When this came out, so this was a student trip sponsored by the New York Times. They're not going to do any more of these in 2019 a bunch of the students complained. McNeil was investigated at the time. There was an HR investigation. And as Dean Beckhay later said, and I first heard this, I thought I was going to fire the guy. And then we looked into it and he did not have malicious intent. There the matter lay, it was a private personnel matter. So that was 2019, summer of 2019. Now he's forced to resign in February 2021, what happened? Ben Smith, the New York Times media reporter, said someone leaked that internal investigation to the Daily Beast, which wrote a rather incendiary story about it, saying he was a racist and sexist without examples really beyond the use of the N-word in a matter of asking, as you said, this student, how had it been used, and he used the whole word. So at first, his bosses said, we looked into this, and intent does matter. McNeil had no bad intent. The letter by 150 go out, and they say, as we've learned in our HR training, not as journalists, in our HR training, intent doesn't matter. Then, Baquet said, as then McNeil's resigning, And Baquet, and a managing editor, they say, obviously, we've learned the lesson of this. Intent doesn't matter when you say this word. Then they had to backtrack on that because obviously, intent matters. If intent doesn't matter, society collapses. First of all, it's essential in the criminal justice system. But it's also just essential in human relationships because as this letter by the angry employees laid out, we are being told, we are being trained as human beings, it's the HR, it's not your professional training, it's your getting along with other people training, that your subjective response to things is what decides what happens. And again, how do you even move forward when it doesn't matter what people were trying to say and do. And one further thing, I was listening to a talk by some law professors, Nadine Stroson and Randall Kennedy at Heterodox Academy. And they were saying in law school, it is becoming increasingly difficult to teach like the Dred Scott decision, which is Ranked as one of the worst Supreme Court rulings in history, which essentially reified slavery and said a freed Black person anywhere in the United States can be considered a slave. I'm sure I'm screwing it up somehow, but that was the essence. It was just a horribly racist ruling, which has since been overturned, certainly. But they were saying it's being dropped, being taught, because the language of it is so racist and upsetting that law students don't want to hear it. Another thing that's going on at law school is law students don't want to, in moot court, so this is a pretend trial, don't want to take the side of a case if they find the views obnoxious. So this idea that teaching Dred Scott is not saying I believe in Dred Scott, but you can see the ripples of where that goes if your speech in any way can be construed as advocating something you're merely discussing.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you also see that in a really interesting way in a lot of fiction. So, you know, there's been various controversies where authors have had their book contracts cancelled or been reviled, certainly on social media, been dropped by their agents, because in the work they depict people with bigoted or sometimes racist points of view. And every time that I've looked into these, it was very, very evident. This wasn't a sort of backdoor attempt to try and sympathize with those ideas. It was very evident that those characters that were meant to be read, often according of YA literature, as very unambiguously bad people, very unambiguously bad characters. And so it's just this weird thing where on the one hand, we're saying what we have to do with the work as a society on these issues and talk about them and grapple with them. But then on the other hand, you can't depict them which seems very strange. And certainly there's a lot of emphasis on being upfront about the dark parts of American history. And the Dred Scott case certainly is one of the darkest moments, or the darkest moment in American judicial history. But then you can't actually talk about it because it obviously involves the expression within the ruling of racist ideas. It's a very strange way in which the imperatives of this moment cut against each other in sort of unhelpful ways. Just to get back to McNeil for one brief moment, what I thought interesting about it is some of the things that were taken as obviously wrong or disqualifying in this context. So apparently McNeil defended the idea of cultural mixity, saying that cultural appropriation was not always bad. And he had doubts about the scientific wisdom of a shaman that they visited on this trip. And again, you know, because the students on this trip, which by the way, so far as we can tell, there was no Black people on the trip, or at least who made a complaint. The main person who seems to have complained and who's been cited in the media is a white girl who went to Andover School, one of the most expensive private schools, most prestigious private schools in the country. The trip cost something like $5,800, $5,900 to go on, you know, plus airfare. So it's, you know, we're talking about extremely privileged people who do not themselves belong in any sort of obvious identity group that is sort of at the center of these debates. And yet the fact that they were offended by McNeil's skepticism about what the shaman said or by his skepticism about the ills of cultural appropriation is in itself treated as damning evidence. So it's another way in which intent doesn't matter. And the truthfulness of what he said doesn't matter. What matters is sort of reaction of this group of highly privileged 17 year old school kids, which in this case, you know, was enough to end the career of somebody who'd been in the New York Times for 47, 48 years, who'd been one of the newspaper's main voices in COVID, one of the people who really warned the American public about it when a lot of other people were still downplaying the extent of the threat. It's really a striking way in which we're sort of downplaying intent. And that's placed into the the last point from your article was the report to the authorities, right? That you're not taking this up privately, You're not finding McNeil in the New York Times canteen, which has a very nice view of New York and saying, hey, you know what, like I read about what you said and I'm frankly offended. And like, what were you up to? And having it out one-on-one, you write the letter to the authorities asking them to take action. So tell us about how the report of the authorities fits into this conversation.
0: This was when I started writing about Title IX. So this is campus sexual assault. And I started writing about all this around 2013 and wrote some big stories for Slate and then The Atlantic about what was going on. And my concern was, of course, I'm against sexual assault in any form. But what was happening was a very well-intended effort to eliminate all campus sexual assault. And what happened was the definition of sexual assault expanded to include Virtually anything that could be strewed as a sexual encounter, language, et cetera, intent doesn't matter, was key to this. And so a lot of young men were being punished, expelled in cases that just seemed grossly unfair. So I started looking into this. And one of the things that really most shocked me was the rise of these cadres of specialists who Only dealt with this issue on campus and would have these discussions with students, you know, sort of micro going over each touch, each move of these two students. And in a lot of cases, there's both sides concede the event. It was alcohol fueled, but we're not talking about someone passed out. Was two people who've been drinking too much. It began consensually. And then, you know, she made a complaint later. But what was really stunning was the idea. And I again I talked with my friends, they're like, could you imagine going to a dean and saying, Well, I told him he could do this, but he didn't ask me if he could do that, because one of the rules on campus became affirmative consent. Each touch, each time must be consented to. So a lot of these cases turned on. Yes, I agreed to intercourse, but I didn't agree to being touched the next morning. And he just touched me without asking my permission. So these kids come onto college the first week. They're instructed in Title IX in these rules and are told, if anything happens, if you hear of anything, The slogan for Drexel University's Title IX office is see something, hear something, know something, say something. Now, that's not very different from the Department of Mm -hmm. Homeland Security. So they are being told there are people who are trained to handle any kind of interpersonal dispute of a sexual nature. And we want you to go report it. We don't want you to work it out. And again, I'm not saying obviously things that are of a violative criminal nature should be reported, but that's not what was happening here. And so this whole idea has really been institutionalized on campus. It has expanded to bias response teams. If you hear any words you don't like, call the bias response team. And now this has come to the workplace because we see it with the Donald McNeil case. It wasn't something he did in the workplace. It's they heard about something he did two years earlier on a trip. So there are now these authorities everywhere in society and you are supposed to go report people and your German, part of German history is East German history is you can construct whole societies where everyone's reporting on everyone. Not a happy place to live.
1: I mean, it's one of the weird things in which the received wisdom of a left and received wisdom of a right is sort of flipping in interesting ways, right? I mean, I remember all of my friends and everybody in my social circle being outraged by the idea of see something, say something, when it was a slogan after 9-11. And of course, the thing is that terrorism really is bad, right? I mean, you know, it was somehow sort of shunted out of view that the underlying thing that people were worried about was a very, very real thing that we really should be concerned about. And yet I think they were right to say a culture of see something, say something that just encourages people to report any vague suspicion they might have is going to lead to all kinds of intrusion and all kinds of injustice. It's interesting that obviously when we talk about some of these issues, there's bad things too. Sexual assault is a very, very serious crime. So the quibble is not with whether the underlying concern is valid or not. Like the worry about terrorism, it is a very, very legitimate concern. And yet people who said 10 years ago, see something, say something is a terrible social mechanism. Now one hesitates to express the concern about it because it feels like it's indicating that you don't take the underlying problem seriously.
0: On the campus front, this is how quickly it gets distorted. Yes, exactly. Because you have to say, I'm against terrorism. I'm against racism. I'm against sexual assault. And what happened on campuses, this see something at some places, 30 to 50% of the complaints are third party complaints. Someone else is saying, I heard a rumor about someone, or I thought I saw something that didn't look right. And Yale, for a short time, in their annual report, would say what happened to these cases. These would come into their Title IX office. They would go to the alleged victim. The alleged victim would say, "I'm not a victim." In almost every case, the alleged victim said, "I'm not a victim. I don't want to pursue this." But at some schools, I know of cases that were pursued. So the young woman who, through the rumor mill, is alleged to have been a victim says, "I'm not a victim," and the Title IX office says it doesn't matter we're going ahead with this investigation of your boyfriend and we expect you to be a witness against him. Now, I don't know how much grosser the distortion of good intentions become than that.
1: So I have a sort of big question in my mind after all of this conversation, which is that on the one hand, there's the model of a telegraph of a telephone. It's a new technology. You know, one we didn't talk about is that I do think a lot of this was driven in complicated ways by... A sort of moral hygiene response to the presence of Donald Trump in the polity, right? It's sort of like we're going to exercise control over the spaces where we have power because this scary guy is present. And we can't really do anything about it, and so all of that might suggest that we live in a moment of an excessive response to some real problems, or at least a wrong-headed response to some real problems. I'm um, not necessarily that it's. I don't think the problem is so much of the response is too big; it's just that it's not the right kind of response. And that over time that will subside and we will build new norms. And if you are causing drama on social media, people roll their eyes and you lose respect rather than being able to win cachet through it. And some of the sort of obvious violations of due process that you've talked about become worked out on campus and so on. That's a sort of optimistic case. The pessimistic case is that we live at a moment of real cultural shift where we're going, as some sociologists have put it, from a sort of individualistic ethos to a victimhood culture in which being able to portray yourself as in some ways, a victim of injustice is itself a status marker and therefore people have incentives to lean into it, a culture in which a lot of these mechanisms have become institutionalized. And so it's very hard to get out of them. Which do you think is more likely? Do you have any kind of sense of probabilities of whether these are serious problems we should talk about and fight against but that will work themselves out or whether this is a sort of permanent shift and we're just seeing the beginnings of it?
0: Well, if you look over time about this kind of thing, we don't have East Germany anymore. So things, you know, can eventually shift. I am a natural pessimist. So I'm always happy when I'm proven wrong. Right now, I'm quite pessimistic about this, I think we have a long way to go. Absolutely, we didn't talk about how Trump fed into this. But what I was writing about when I first started writing, there was no Donald Trump on the scene. So this far predates Trump. And I think the cultural issues we talked about in the way of responding and behaving at school and work among friends is being embedded. And the elites' particularly are being taught this and they have disproportionate power you leave these elite schools and then you go become a legislator or you know you make laws you enter professions that control other people and i think we have a long way to go and as we said we don't even see on social media kind of the new rules come hey hey come on lay off we're not seeing that we're seeing the opposite of that